St. Augustine's Confessions, Book 6, Confessions 1. O God, hope of my youth, where were you all this time? Where were you hiding from me? Were you not my creator, and was it not you who made me different from the beasts that walk on the earth, and wiser than the birds that fly in the air? Yet I was walking on a treacherous path in darkness. I was looking for you outside myself, and I did not find the God of my own heart. I had reached the depths of the ocean. I had lost all faith and was in despair of finding the truth. By now my mother had come to me, for her piety had given her strength to follow me over land and sea, facing all perils and the sure faith she had in you. When the ship was in danger, it was she who put heart into the crew, the very men to whom passengers unused to the sea turn for reassurance when they are alarmed. She promised them that they would make the land in safety, because you had given her this promise in a vision. And she found that I too was in grave danger because of my despair of discovering the truth. I told her that I was not a Catholic Christian, but at least I was no longer a manichae. Yet she did not leap for joy as though this news were unexpected. In fact, to this extent, her anxiety for me had already been allayed. For in her prayers to you she wept for me as though I were dead, but she also knew that you would recall me to life. In her heart, she offered me to you as though I were laid out on a bier, waiting for you to say to the widow's son, Young man, I say to you, stand up. And he would get up and begin to speak, and you would give him back to his mother. So she felt no great surge of joy, and her heart beat none the faster when she heard that the tears and the prayers which she had offered you day after day, had at last in great part been rewarded. For I had been rescued from falsehood, even if I had not yet grasped the truth. Instead, because she was sure that if you had promised her all, you would also give her what remained to be given, she told me quite serenely, with her heart full of faith, that in Christ she believed that before she left this life, she would see me a faithful Catholic. This was what she said to me. But to you, from whom all mercies spring, she poured out her tears and her prayers all the more fervently, begging you to speed your help and give me light in my darkness. She hurried all the more eagerly to church, where she listened with rapt attention to all that Ambrose said. For her, his words were like a spring of water within her that flows continually to bring her everlasting life. She loved him as God's angel, because she had learnt that it was through him that I had been led, for the time being, into a state of wavering uncertainty. She had no doubt that I must pass through this condition, which would lead me from sickness to health, but not before I had surmounted a still graver danger, much like that which doctors call the crisis. Confessions 2 it had been my mother's custom in Africa to take meal cakes and bread and wine to the shrines of the saints on their memorial days, but the doorkeeper would not allow her to do this in Milan. 
When she learned that the bishop had forbidden it, she accepted his ruling with such pious submission that I was surprised to see how willingly she condemned her own practice rather than dispute his command. For her heart was not beset by a craving for wine, nor did the love of it goad her into hatred of the truth, as happens with so many men and women who are as disgusted to hear the praises of sobriety as drunkards to be offered water with their wine. She used to bring her basket full of the customary offerings of food, intending to taste a little and give the rest away. For herself, she never poured more than a small cupful of wine, watered to suit her sober palate, and she drank only as much of it as was needed to do honour to the dead. If there were many shrines to be honoured in this way, she carried the same cup around with her to each one and shared its contents, by now well watered and quite lukewarm with any of her friends who were present, allowing each to take only the smallest sip. For her purpose was to perform an act of piety, not to seek pleasure for herself. But she willingly seized this custom when she found that this great preacher, this holy bishop, had forbidden such ceremonies even to those who performed them with sobriety, both for fear that to some they might be occasions for drunkenness, and also because they bore so close a resemblance to the superstitious rites which the pagans held in honour of their dead. Instead of a basket full of the fruits of the earth, she learned to bring to the shrines of the martyrs a heart full of prayers far purer than any of these gifts. In this way, she was able to give what she could to the poor, and the communion of the Lord's body was celebrated at the shrines of the saints who had given their lives and earned the crown of martyrdom by following the example of his passion. Yet it seems to me that my mother probably would not have given up this habit so readily if the prohibition had come from another whom she loved less dearly than Ambrose. My heart lies open before you, O Lord my God, and this is what I believe. Because he could show me the way of salvation, she was greatly devoted to Ambrose, and his heart too had warmed to her for her truly pious way of life, her zeal in good works, and her regular church-going. Often when he saw me, he would break out in praise of her, congratulating me on having such a mother. But he little knew what sort of a son she had, one who doubted all these things and was convinced that a man could not find the road leading to life. Confessions 3 but although my mind was full of questions and I was restless to argue out my problems, I did not pour out my sorrows to you, praying for your help. I even thought of Ambrose simply as a man who was fortunate, as the world appraises fortune, because he was held in such high esteem by such important people. His celibacy seemed to me the only hardship which he had to bear. As for his secret hopes, his struggles against the temptations which must come to one so highly placed, the consolations he found in adversity, and the joy he knew in the depths of his heart when he fed upon your bread, these were quite beyond my surmise, for they lay outside my experience. For his part, he did not know how I was tormented, or how deeply I was engulfed in danger. I could not ask him the questions I wished to ask in the way that I wished to ask them, 
because so many people used to keep him busy with their problems that I was prevented from talking to him face to face. When he was not with them, which was never for very long at the time, he was reviving his body with the food that it needed or refreshing his mind with reading. When he read, his eyes scanned the page and his heart explored the meaning, but his voice was silent and his tongue was still. All could approach him freely, and it was not usual for visitors to be announced, so that often, when we came to see him, we found him reading like this in silence, for he never read aloud. We would sit there quietly, for no one had the heart to disturb him when he was so engrossed in study. After a time, we went away again, guessing that in the short time, when he was free from the turmoil of other men's affairs and was able to refresh his own mind, he would not wish to be distracted. Perhaps he was afraid that if he read aloud some obscure passage in the author he was reading might raise a question in the mind of an attentive listener, and he would then have to explain the meaning or even discuss some of the more difficult points. If he spent his time in this way, he would not manage to read as much as he wished. Perhaps a more likely reason why he read to himself was that he needed to spare his voice, which quite easily became hoarse. But whatever his reason, he may be sure it was a good one. At all events, I had no chance to probe the heart of this man, your holy oracle, with the questions that I wished to put to him, unless it was some matter that could be treated briefly. If I was to pour out my sea of troubles before him, I should need to find him truly at his leisure, but this I never did. Yet every Sunday I listened as he preached the word of truth to the people, and I grew more and more certain that it was possible to unravel the tangle woven by those who had deceived both me and others with their cunning lies against the holy scriptures. I learned that your spiritual children, whom by your grace you have made to be born again of our Catholic Mother the Church, do not understand the words God made man in his own image, to mean that you are limited by the shape of a human body. And although I could form not the vaguest idea, even with the help of allegory, of how there could be substance that was spiritual, nevertheless, I was glad all this time I had been howling my complaints not against the Catholic faith, but against something quite imaginary which I had thought up in my own head. At the same time, I was ashamed of myself, because I had certainly been both rash and impious in speaking out in condemnation of a matter on which I ought to have taken pains to be better informed. O oh God, you who are so high above us and yet so close, hidden and yet always present, you have not parts, some greater and some smaller. You are everywhere and everywhere you are entire. Nowhere are you limited by space. You have not the shape of a body like ours. Yet you made man in your own likeness, and man is plainly in space from head to foot. Confessions 4 Since I did not know what was meant by your likeness, I ought to have knocked at your door and asked how it was to be understood. I ought not to have derided and set myself against it as though it meant what I imagined it to mean.
anxiety about what I could believe as certain gnawed at my heart all the more sharply as I grew more and more ashamed that I had been misled and deluded by promises of certainty for so long, and had talked wildly like an ignorant child about so many unconfirmed theories as though they were beyond the question. It was only later that I realised that they were false. But by now I was sure at least that there was no certainty in them, though I had taken them for true when I blindly attacked your Catholic Church. Though I had not yet discovered that what the Church taught was the truth, at least I had learnt that she did not teach the doctrines which I so sternly denounced. This bewildered me, but I was on the road to conversion and I was glad, my God, that the one Church, the body of your only Son, in which the name of Christ had been put upon me as a child, had no liking for childish absurdities, and there was nothing in the sound doctrine which she taught to show that you, the creator of all things, were confined within a measure of space, which, however high, however wide it might be, was yet strictly determined by the form of a human body. I was glad, too, that at last I had been shown how to interpret the ancient scriptures of the law and the prophets, in a different light from that which had previously made them seem absurd, when I used to criticise your saints for holding beliefs which they had never really held at all. I was pleased to hear that in his sermons to the people, Ambrose often repeated the text, the written law inflicts death, whereas the spiritual law brings life, as though this were a rule upon which he wished to insist most carefully. And when he lifted the veil of mystery and disclosed the spiritual meaning of texts, which taken literally appeared to contain the most unlikely doctrines, I was not aggrieved by what he said, although I did not yet know whether it was true. I refused to allow myself to accept any of it in my heart, because I was afraid of a headlong fall, but I was hanging in suspense which was more likely to be fatal than a fall. I wanted to be just as certain of these things which were hidden from my sight as that seven and three make ten, for I was not so far out of my wits as to suppose that not even this could be known. But I wanted to be equally sure about everything else, both material things for which I could not vouch by my own senses, and spiritual things of which I could form no idea except in bodily form. If I had been able to believe I might have been cured, because in my mind's eye I should have had clearer vision, which by some means might have been directed towards your eternal, unfailing truth. But it is often the case that a man who has had experience of a bad doctor is afraid to trust himself even to a good one. And in the same way my sick soul, which could not be healed except through faith, refused this cure for fear of believing a doctrine that was false. My soul resisted your healing hand, for it was you who prepared and dispensed the medicine of faith and made it so potent a remedy for the diseases of the world. Confessions 5 From now on I began to prefer the Catholic teaching. The Church demanded that certain things should be believed even though they could not be proved. For if they could be proved, not all men could understand the proof, and some could not be proved at all. I thought that the church was entirely honest in this and far less pretentious than the Manichees, who laughed at people who took things on faith, 
made rash promises of scientific knowledge, and then put forward a whole system of preposterous inventions which they expected their followers to believe on trust because they could not be proved. Then, O Lord, you laid your most gentle, most merciful finger on my heart and set my thoughts in order. For I began to realize that I believed countless things which I had never seen or which had taken place when I was not there to see. So many events in the history of the world, so many facts about places and towns which I had never seen, and so much that I believed on the word of friends or doctors or various other people. Unless we took these things on trust, we should accomplish absolutely nothing in this life. Most of all, it came home to me how firm and unshakable was the faith which told me who my parents were, because I could never have known this unless I believed what I was told. In this way you made me understand that I ought not to find fault with those who believed your Bible, which you have established with such great authority amongst almost all the nations of the earth, but with those who did not believe it. And that I ought to pay no attention to people who asked me how I could be sure that the scriptures were delivered to mankind by the spirit of the one true God who can tell no lie. It was precisely this that I most needed to believe, because in all the conflicting books of philosophy which I had read no misleading proposition, however contentious, had been able even for one moment to wrest from me my belief in your existence and in your right to govern human affairs. And this despite the fact that I had no knowledge of what you are. My belief that you existed and that our well-being was in your hands was sometimes strong, sometimes weak, but I always held to it even though I knew neither what I ought to think about your substance, nor which way would lead me to you or lead me back to you. And so, since we are too weak to discover the truth by reason alone, and for this reason need the authority of sacred books, I began to believe that you would never have invested the Bible with such conspicuous authority in every land, unless you had intended it to be the means by which we should look for you and believe in you. As for the passages which had previously struck me as absurd, now that I had heard reasonable explanations of many of them, I regarded them as of the nature of profound mysteries. And it seemed to me all the more right that the authority of Scripture should be respected and accepted with the purest faith, because while all can read it with ease, it also has a deeper meaning in which its great secrets are locked away. Its plain language and simple style make it accessible to everyone, and yet it absorbs the attention of the learned. By this means it gathers all men in the wide sweep of its net, and some pass safely through the narrow mesh and come to you. They are not many, but they would be fewer, still if it were not that this book stands out alone on so high a peak of authority, and yet draws so great a throng in the embrace of its holy humility. My mind dwelt on these thoughts, and you were there to help me and listen to my sighs. You were my helmsman when I ran adrift, and you did not desert me as I travelled along the broad way of the world. Confessions 6 I was eager for fame and wealth and marriage, but you only derided these ambitions. 
They caused me to suffer the most galling difficulties, but the less you allowed me to find pleasure in anything that was not yourself, the greater, I know, was your goodness to me. Look into my heart, O Lord, for it was your will that I should remember these things and confess them to you. I pray now that my soul may cling to you, for it was you who released it from the deadly snare in which it was so firmly caught. It was in a state of misery and you probed its wound to the quick, pricking it on to leave all else and turn to you to be healed, to turn to you who are above all things and without whom nothing could exist. My misery was complete and I remember how one day you made me realise how utterly wretched I was. I was preparing a speech in praise of the emperor, intending that it should include a great many lies, which would certainly be applauded by an audience who knew well enough how far from the truth they were. I was greatly preoccupied by this task and my mind was feverishly busy with its harassing problems. As I walked along one of the streets in Milan, I noticed the poor beggar who must, I suppose, have had his fill of food and drink since he was laughing and joking. Sadly, I turned to my companions and spoke to them of all the pain and trouble which is caused by our own folly. My ambitions had placed a load of misery on my shoulders, and the further I carried it, the heavier it became, but the only purpose of all the efforts we made was to reach the goal of peaceful happiness. This beggar had already reached it ahead of us, and perhaps we should never reach it at all. For by all my laborious contriving and intricate manoeuvres, I was hoping to win the joy of worldly happiness, the very thing which this man had already secured at the cost of the few pence which he had begged. Of course, his was not true happiness, but the state of felicity which I aimed to reach was still more false. He at any rate was cheerful while I was unhappy. He had no worries, but I was full of apprehension. And if anyone had asked me whether I would rather be happy or afraid, I should have replied that I preferred to be happy. But if I had then been asked to choose between the life which that beggar led and my own, I should have chosen my own life, full of fears and worries though it was. This would have been an illogical choice, and how could I have pretended that it was the right one? For I ought not to have preferred myself to the beggar simply because I was the more learned, since my learning was no source of happiness to me. I only made use of it to try to please others, and I only tried to please them, not to teach them. This was why you broke my bones with the rod of your discipline. My soul, then, must beware of those who say that what matters is the reason why a man is happy. They will say that it was drunkenness that made the beggar happy, while my soul looked for happiness in honour. But what sort of honour did it hope to find? Not the kind which is to be found in you, O Lord. It was not true honour, any more than the beggar's joy was true joy, but it turned my head even more. That very night the beggar would sleep off his drunkenness, but mine had been with me night after night as I slept, and was still with me in the morning when I woke, and would still be with me night and day after that. Yet I know that it does matter why a man is happy. 
there is a world of difference between the joy of hope that comes from faith and the shallow happiness that I was looking for. There was a difference too between the beggar and myself. He was certainly the happier man, not only because he was flushed with cheerfulness while I was eaten away with anxiety, but also because he had earned his wine by wishing good day to pass us by while I was trying to feed my pride by telling lies. On this occasion, I told my friends much of what I felt about these things. Often, by observing them, I was made aware of my own state, and I was not pleased with what I saw. This made me sad, and my misery was redoubled. And if by chance fortune smiled upon me, I was too disheartened to seize it, for it would take to flight just as my hand was ready to close upon it. Confessions 7 This was a constant subject of gloomy talk among my circle of friends, but I used to discuss it especially with Olypius and Nebridius. Olypius came from my own town and his people were one of the leading families. He was younger than I was and had been a student of mine both in our own town when I first began to teach and later on at Carthage. He was greatly attached to me because he thought that I was a good and learned man, and I was fond of him because although he was still young, it was quite clear that he had much natural disposition to goodness. But he had been caught in the whirl of easy morals at Carthage, with its continual round of futile entertainments, and had lost his heart and his head to the games in the amphitheatre. At the time when he was so wrapped up in this wretched sport, I had opened my school as professor of rhetoric in Carthage. But because of some difference of opinion which had occurred between his father and me, he was not one of my pupils. I found out that he was fatally attracted by the games, and it caused me grave anxiety to think that he was likely to ruin a future which promised so well, if he had not already done so. But I had no means of offering him advice or using any pressure to restrain him, for I could claim neither the privilege of a friend nor the right of a master. I thought that he shared his father's feelings about me, although in fact this was not the case for he ignored his father's wishes and treated me with courtesy when we met. He soon began to come and listen to some of my lectures, but he never stayed for long. I had forgotten that I might use my influence with him to prevent him from wasting his talents in this thoughtless, impetuous enthusiasm for futile pastimes. But you, O oh Lord, who hold the reins of all you have created, had not forgotten this man, who was one day to be a bishop and administer your sacrament to your children. You used me to set him on the right path, but so that we might recognize that it was all by your doing, you used me without my knowledge. One day, as I sat in my usual place with my pupils before me, Olypius came in and after greeting me politely, sat down and listened attentively to the lesson. It occurred to me that the passage which I happened to be reading could very well be explained by an illustration taken from the games in the arena. It would appeal to the students and make my meaning clearer, and it would also enable me to make a laughing stock of those who were under the spell of this insane sport. You know, my God, that I was not thinking of Olypius, who so badly needed to be cured of this mania. But he took my words to heart, thinking that I had meant the allusion to apply to him alone. 
Anyone else would have taken this as a good reason to be angry with me, but this conscientious young man saw in it cause for anger with himself and a warmer affection for me. Long ago, you caused these words of yours to be inserted in your book. The wise are grateful for a remonstrance. I had not meant to rebuke him, but you use us all, whether we know it or not, for a purpose which is known to you, a purpose which is just. You made my heart and my tongue burn like coals to sear his mind, which was so full of promise, and cure it when it was sick of a wasting disease. Those who have no inkling of your mercy may be silent and offer you no word of praise, but from the depths of my heart I make a vowel of your mercy. For after he had heard my words, Olypius hastened to drag himself out of the deep pitfall into which, dazzled by the allure of pleasure, he had plunged of his own accord. By a great effort of self-control, he shook himself free of all the dirt of the arena and never went near it again. Then he managed to overcome his father's reluctance to allow him to become a pupil of mine. His father gave in and granted his request. But once he had started his studies with me, he became involved in my superstitious beliefs. He particularly admired the Manichees for their ostensible continence, which he thought quite genuine, though of course it was merely a nonsensical and deceitful method of trapping precious souls which had not learned to feel the depth of real virtue and were easily deceived by the appearance of virtue that was spurious and counterfeit. Confessions 8 But he did not abandon his career in the world, for his parents would not allow him to forget it. He went to Rome ahead of me to study law, and there, strange to relate, he became obsessed with an extraordinary craving for gladiatorial shows. At first he detested these displays and refused to attend them, but one day during the season for this cruel and bloodthirsty sport, he happened to meet some friends and fellow students returning from their dinner. In a friendly way, they brushed aside his resistance and his stubborn protests and carried him off to the arena. You may drag me there bodily, he protested, but do you imagine that you can make me watch the show and give my mind to it? I shall be there, but it will be just as if I were not present and I shall prove myself stronger than you or the games. He did not manage to deter them by what he said. And perhaps the very reason why they took him with them was to discover whether he would be as good as his word. When they arrived at the arena, the place was seething with the lust for cruelty. They found seats as best they could, and Olypius shut his eyes tightly, determined to have nothing to do with these atrocities. If only he had closed his ears as well. For an incident in the fight drew a great roar from the crowd, and this thrilled him so deeply that he could not contain his curiosity. Whatever had caused the uproar, he was confident that if he saw it, he would find it repulsive and remain master of himself. So he opened his eyes, and his soul was stabbed with a wound more deadly than any which the gladiator whom he was so anxious to see had received in his body. He fell and fell more pitifully than the man whose fall had drawn that roar of excitement from the crowd. The din had pierced his ears and forced him to open his eyes, laying his soul open to receive the wound which struck it down. 
This was presumption, not courage. The weakness of his soul was in relying upon itself instead of trusting in you. When he saw the blood, it was as though he had drunk a deep draught of savage passion. Instead of turning away, he fixed his eyes upon the scene and drank in all its frenzy, unaware of what he was doing. He reveled in the wickedness of the fighting and was drunk with the fascination of bloodshed. He was no longer the man who had come to the arena, but simply one of the crowd which he had joined, a fit companion for the friends who had brought him. Need I say more? He watched and cheered and grew hot with excitement. And when he left the arena, he carried away with him a diseased mind which would leave him no peace until he came back again. No longer simply together with the friends who had first dragged him there, but at their head, leading new sheep to the slaughter. Yet you stretched out your almighty, ever merciful hand, O God, and rescued him from this madness. You taught him to trust in you, not in himself. But this was much later. Confessions 9 Nevertheless, all this was stored away in his memory, so that later on he might turn the lesson to good account. And there was another event in his life too, which you, my God, must surely have allowed to happen only because you knew that he was to be a great man in later life. And you wanted him to start in good time to learn that in judging cases, one man must not too easily condemn another through being over-credulous. While he was still studying under me at Carthage, you allowed him to be arrested as a thief by the market officers. He was in the market in the middle of the day, thinking over an exercise of the sort, which is regularly given to students, a set piece which he had to recite. He was strolling alone in front of the law courts, carrying his pen and his writing tablets, when the real thief, a young student like himself, made his way without attracting the notice of Olypius towards the leaden gratings which project over the moneylender's shops. He carried a hatchet, which he kept out of sight, and with this he began to hack away the lead. But the moneylenders in their shops below heard the noise. Quietly, they discussed what to do and sent some men to arrest anyone they might find. At the sound of their voices, the thief dropped his hatchet and ran off, frightened that he might be caught with it in his possession. Lippius had not seen the thief arrive, but he saw him leave. He noticed that he was in a hurry to get away and went into the building to discover the reason for this haste. He found the hatchet and while he stood wondering how it came to be there, the men who had been sent to find the intruder arrived to find Olypius alone and in his hand the tool which had caused the noise that had alarmed them and brought them to the spot. They seized him and dragged him away, proudly telling the crowd of shopkeepers who had by now assembled that they had caught him in the act. Then they took him off to hand him over to the magistrates. But this was the end of his lesson. You, O oh Lord, were the only witness of his innocence, and at once you stood by his side to defend him. For as they were leading him away to be tortured or imprisoned, they met the architect in charge of public buildings. Olypius's captors were particularly glad to meet this official, because he had often suspected them of stealing goods missing from the market, and now at last he would realise who was guilty of these crimes. But the architect had often seen Olypius at the house of one of the senators, whom he frequently visited. 
He recognized him at once, and taking him by the arm, led him aside to ask how he came to be in such trouble. When he heard what had happened, he turned to the excited onlookers, who were noisily threatening Olypius, and told them all to follow him. They passed by the house of the youth who had committed the crime. At the door they found a slave boy, quite able to tell all he knew, but too young to fear any consequences for his master. He had, in fact, been with his master in the market. Olypius remembered him and told the architect who showed the hatchet to the boy and asked him whose it was. Without hesitation, the boy answered, ours, and went on to tell the whole story in answer to the architect's questions. By this means, the guilt was laid where it belonged, much to the confusion of the crowd, which had begun too soon to be jubilant over the arrest of Olypius. And Olypius, who was destined later to preach your word and judge many cases in your church, went home all the wiser for this experience. Confessions 10 I found him in Rome when I arrived. He became very closely attached to me and came with me to Milan so that we need not part, and also because he wanted to put his legal studies into practice, though this was more his parents' wish than his own. He had already acted three times as assessor, with an integrity that was a source of wonder to his colleagues, though to him it was astonishing that anyone should prefer wealth before honesty. But it was not only by inducements of bribery that his character was put to the test. He was also subjected to intimidation. When he was in Rome acting as assessor to the controller of Italian provincial funds, there was a very influential senator who held large numbers of people in his power, either because he had granted them favours or because they had reason to fear him. In his usual domineering way, he attempted to obtain some privilege to which he had no right in law. Olypius refused to grant it. A bribe was offered and he contemptuously turned it down. Threats followed and he rebuffed them. Everyone was amazed by his extraordinary self-possession, for although this formidable man had earned widespread notoriety for his innumerable methods of patronising or injuring others, Olypius neither desired him as a friend nor feared him as an enemy. Even the judge for whom Olypius was acting as assessor agreed that the privilege should not be granted, though he would not openly refuse it. Declaring that he could do nothing in face of Olypius's attitude, he left the case in his hands. And in fact, if he had acted himself, Olypius would have left the court. There was only one temptation to which he nearly yielded through his love of literature, and this was to have books copied for him at the special rates available to government officers. But he conscientiously chose the better course and decided that honest principles which forbade the deal were more precious than the opportunity which made it possible. This is a small matter, but he who is trustworthy over a little sum is trustworthy over a greater. The words of Christ, the voice of your truth, can never be unmeaning, and it was he who said, if you then could not be trusted to use the base riches you had, who will put the true riches in your keeping? Who will give you property of your own, if you could not be trusted with what was only lent to you. These were the qualities I knew in Olypius, who was my close friend and like myself was perplexed to know what course of life we ought to follow. Nebridius was also with us. 
he had left his own town near Carthage and Carthage itself, where he had spent much of his time. He had given up his house and his family's rich estate in the country and had left his mother who refused to come with him. He had come to Milan for no other purpose than to live with me so that we might be together in our fervent search for truth and wisdom. His distress was not less than mine and like me he wavered between one course and another, desperately seeking the way of happiness and prying closely into the problems which troubled us most. We were like three hungry mouths, able only to gasp out our needs to one another, while our eyes were on you, waiting for you to grant us in due time our nourishment. And in all the bitter disappointments which by your mercy thwarted our undertakings in this world, we tried to see the reason for our sufferings. But darkness overshadowed us and we turned away asking, how long is this to be? Again and again we asked ourselves this question, but we did not relinquish our worldly aims because we could not see the light of any truth that we might grasp in place of them. Confessions 11 I found much to bewilder me in my memories of the long time which had passed since I was 19, the age at which I had first begun to search in earnest for truth and wisdom and had promised myself that once I had found them, I would give up all the vain hopes and mad delusions which sustained my futile ambitions. I realised that I was now 30 years old and was still floundering in the same quagmire because I was greedy to enjoy what the world had to offer, though it only eluded me and wasted my strength. And all the time I had been telling myself one tale after another. Tomorrow I shall discover the truth. I shall see it quite plainly and it will be mine to keep. Faustus will come and explain everything. The academics, what wonderful men they are. Is it true that we can never know for certain how we ought to manage our lives? No, not that. We must search all the more carefully and never despair. I can see now that the passages in scripture which I used to think absurd are not absurd at all. They can be understood in another sense quite fairly. I shall fix my foot firmly on the step where my parents set me as a boy until I find the manifest truth. But where and when am I to look for it? Ambrose has no time to spare and I have no time for reading. Where am I to look for the books I need? Where and when can I buy them or get someone to lend them to me? I must plan my time and arrange my day for the good of my soul. Great hope is born in me because I have found that the doctrines of the Catholic faith are not what I thought them to be, and my accusations were unfounded. The learned men of the church hold it wrong to believe that God is limited by the shape of human body. Why then do I hesitate to knock, so that the door may be opened to reveal what is still hidden from me? My pupils keep me busy all the morning, but how do I use the rest of my day? Why should I not spend it knocking at God's door? Yet if I did, when could I visit my influential friends whose patronage I need? When could I prepare the lessons for which I am paid by my students? When could I refresh my own mind by giving it a rest from the troubles which absorb it? All this must go by the board. I must dismiss all these futile trifles from my mind and devote myself entirely to the search for truth. Life is a misery and I do not know when death may come. If it steals upon me, shall I be in a fit state to leave this world? Where could I then learn all that I have neglected to learn in this life? Is it not more probable that I should have to pay a heavy penalty for my negligence? Suppose death puts an end to all care. 
suppose that it cuts it off together with the senses of the body. This is another problem to be solved. But it is unthinkable that this could be true. It is not for nothing, not mere chance, that the towering authority of the Christian faith has spread throughout the world. God would never have done so much, such wonderful things for us, if the life of the soul came to an end with the death of the body. Why then do I delay? Why do I not abandon my worldly hopes and give myself up entirely to the search for God and the life of true happiness? But not so fast. This life too is sweet. It has its own charms. They are not of small account and a man must not lightly undertake to detach his mind from them because to return to them later would be a disgrace. It would need little effort to win myself a position of some standing in the world. And what more could a man ask? I have many influential friends, and if I press for nothing more, I may at least obtain a governor's post. I could marry a wife who would bring me a small dowry so that the expense would be no burden, and this would be the limit of my ambitions. There have been many great men who have dedicated themselves to the pursuit of wisdom even though they were married, and I might do well to follow their example. As I reasoned with myself in this way, my heart was buffeted hither and thither by winds blowing from opposite quarters. Time was passing and I kept delaying my conversion to you, my God. Day after day I postponed living in you, but I never put off the death which I died each day in myself. I longed for a life of happiness, but I was frightened to approach it in its own domain. And yet, while I fled from it, I still searched for it. I thought it would be too much for me to bear if I were to be deprived of woman's love. In your mercy, you have given us a remedy to cure this weakness, but I gave it no thought because I never tried it for myself. I believed that continence was to be achieved by man's own power, which I knew that I did not possess. Fool that I was, I did not know that no man can be master of himself except of God's bounty, as your Bible tells us. And you would have given me this strength if I had allowed the cries of my soul to beat upon your ears and had had faith firm enough to shed my troubles onto you. Confessions 12 it was Olypius who prevented me from marrying because he insisted that if I did so, we could not possibly live together in uninterrupted leisure, devoted to the pursuit of wisdom as we had long desired to do. In early adolescence, he had had the experience of sexual intercourse, but it had not become habitual. In fact, he had been ashamed of it and thought it degrading and ever since he had lived a life of the utmost chastity. For my part, I answered his arguments by pointing to the example of married men who had been lovers of wisdom, had served God well, and had retained the affection of their friends, whom they had loyally loved in return. But I was far from being the equal of these noble spirits. I was bound down by this disease of the flesh. Its deadly pleasures were a chain that I dragged along with me, yet I was afraid to be freed from it. And I refused to accept the good advice of Olypius, repelling the hand that meant to loose my bonds as though it only robbed my sores. Moreover, the serpent used me as a mouthpiece to speak to Olypius himself, 
Satan twisted my words into snares that were meant to entice, and strewed them in the path to trap the feet of his victim, who walked in all innocence with no burden to bear. Olypius could not understand how it was that I, of whom he thought so highly, could be so firmly caught in the toils of sexual pleasure as to assert, whenever we discussed the subject, that I could not possibly endure the life of a celibate. When I saw that he was puzzled by my words, I used to defend them by saying that there was a great difference between his own hasty, furtive experience and my enjoyment of a settled way of life. In his case, since he could scarcely remember the occasion, he might easily disparage it. But in mine, it required only the respectable name of marriage, and he need no longer wonder why I found it impossible to turn my back upon it. As a result of what I said, he began to wish to be married himself, not because he had yielded to lust for pleasure of this kind, but simply out of curiosity. He explained that he was eager to find out what it was without which my life, which he thought so pleasant, would seem to me no life but a misery. His mind was free from the fetters by which mine was enchained. He was amazed at my state of bondage, and amazement led to the desire to test it for himself. If he made the experiment, he was likely to fall into the very state which was the object of his amazement, for he was willing to make terms with death, and danger loved is death won. Neither of us was greatly influenced by the thought of such honour as we should earn by fulfilling the duties of maintaining a well-ordered marriage and raising a family. For my part, I was a prisoner of habit, suffering cruel torments through trying to satisfy a lust that could never be sated while Olypius was being led by curiosity into a like state of captivity. This was the state in which we remained until you, O God Most High, who formed us out of clay and never desert us, had pity on our misery and came to our aid in a wonderful way that we could not understand. Confessions 13 I was being urged incessantly to marry, and had already made my proposal and been accepted. My mother had done all she could to help, for it was her hope that once I was married, I should be washed clean of my sins by the saving waters of baptism. She was delighted that day by day I was becoming more fitted for baptism, and in my acceptance of the faith she saw the answer to her prayers and the fulfilment of your promises. At my request and by her own desire, she daily beseeched you with heartfelt prayers to send her some revelation in a vision about my future marriage, but this you would not do. She had some vague and fanciful dreams which were the result of her preoccupation with these thoughts, and when she told me about them, she treated them as of no importance and did not speak with the assurance that she always had when you sent her visions. She always said that by some sense, which she could not describe in words, she was able to distinguish between your revelations and her own natural dreams. All the same, the plans for my marriage were pushed ahead and the girl's parents were asked for their consent. She was nearly two years too young for marriage, but I liked her well enough and was content to wait. Confessions 14 
A group of my friends who detested the bustle and worry of life had all but decided to live a life of peace away from the crowd. We had thought over this project and discussed it together a great deal. The plan was to arrange this life of leisure by pooling our possessions and using such money as we had between us to create a common fund. In the spirit of sincere friendship, none of us would claim this or that as his own, but all would be thrown together and the whole would belong to each and to all. We thought that there might be about 10 members of our community. Some of them were very wealthy, especially Romanianus, who came from my own town. He had been one of my closest friends since boyhood and had come to Milan on some urgent legal business connected with his affairs. He was most enthusiastic about our project, and as he was far richer than the rest of us, his opinions carried great weight. We had agreed that two leaders should be chosen each year to deal with day-to-day -day problems, while the rest of us were to be left to live in peace. But I was hoping to get married and some of the others already had wives. And when we began to ask ourselves whether the women would agree to the plan, all our carefully made arrangements collapsed and broke to pieces in our hands and were discarded. Once more, we turned to our sighs and groans. Again, we trod the wide, well-beaten tracks of the world and thought jostled thought in our hearts. But your will stands firm and in the wisdom of your plan, you made light of ours and prepared the way you had chosen for us. You were ready to grant us in due time our nourishment, ready to open your hand and fill our souls with your blessing. Confessions 15 Meanwhile, I was sinning more and more. The woman with whom I had been living was torn from my side as an obstacle to my marriage, and this was a blow which crushed my heart to bleeding because I loved her dearly. She went back to Africa, vowing never to give herself to any other man, and left with me the son whom she had borne me. But I was too unhappy and too weak to imitate this example set me by a woman. I was impatient at the delay of two years, which had to pass before the girl whom I had asked to marry became my wife, and because I was more a slave of lust than a true lover of marriage, I took another mistress, without the sanction of wedlock. This meant that the disease of my soul would continue unabated. In fact, it would be aggravated, and under the watch and ward of uninterrupted habit, it would persist into the state of marriage. Furthermore, the wound that I had received when my first mistress was wrenched away showed no signs of healing. At first, the pain was sharp and searing, but then the wound began to fester, and though the pain was duller, there was all the less hope of a cure. Confessions 16 Praise and honour be yours, O fountain of mercy. As my misery grew worse and worse, you came the closer to me. Though I did not know it, your hand was poised, ready to lift me from the mire and wash me clean. Nothing prevented me from plunging still deeper into the gulf of carnal pleasure, except the fear of death and your judgment to come. Through all my changing opinions, this fear never left my heart. With my friends Olypius and Nebridius, I often discussed the nature of good and evil. In my judgment, Epicurus would have won all the honours, 
were it not that I believed that the soul lived on after death and received the reward or punishment which it deserved. Epicurus had refused to believe this. If we were immortal, I used to say, and could live in a perpetual state of bodily pleasure with no fear of losing it, why should we not be happy? What else could we desire? I did not realize that the very root of my misery was that I had sunk to such depths and was so blind that I could not discern the light of virtue and of beauty that is loved for its own sake, for true beauty is seen by the inner eye of the soul, not by the eye of the flesh. And I never wondered what was the source of my pleasure in discussing these topics, shameful as they were, with my friends, nor did I ask myself why, however great my indulgence in sensual pleasure, I could not find happiness even in the sense in which I then conceived of it, unless I had these friends. And yet I certainly loved them for their own sakes, and I felt that they loved me for my sake in return. What crooked paths I trod! What dangers threatened my soul when it rashly hoped that by abandoning you it would find something better! Whichever way it turned, on front or back or sides, it lay on a bed that was hard, for in you alone the soul can rest. You are there to free us from the misery of error which leads us astray, to set us on your own path and to comfort us by saying, Run on, for I shall hold you up. I shall lead you and carry you on to the end. 